This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter. And a bit of a different show for you this week. It seems like that's the trend lately with this particular podcast. But I'm heading to Dallas, Texas on Wednesday, early in the morning. So any interviews that I get done are going to be done on location. So I might be able to put together an interview edition later on in the week and take all the different interviews that I do leading up to the fights and make it into a podcast. Otherwise, go to tsn.ca slash UFT and you can watch all those interviews or go to my uh, Twitter, at Aaron Bronstetter. I will be sure to link all of the different interviews that I do, post clips, all of that, live from Dallas, Texas. Not live, you know, taped from Dallas, Texas. UFC 277. That's coming up this weekend, headlined by Amanda Nunes and Juliana Pena, the rematch, as Nunes looks to regain the Women's Bantamweight Championship. Speaking of which, that's the subject of this week's monologue. Amanda Nunes. Remember when she was the greatest of all time? Nobody seems to be giving her any credit anymore. Let's take a look at exactly why Mandy Nunes still is, in all likelihood, the women's goat on this week's monologue. As the Black Eyed Peas once inquired, where is the love? What's wrong with the MMA world, mama? All it took was one loss to Juliana Pena to change the entire perception of Amanda Nunes' career. Considered the greatest female mixed martial artist ever, Nunez fell short in her seventh total title defense against Pena after racking up records for most wins, finishes, knockouts, and longest winning streak, among other accolades, including a title in the second weight class. So why, after all that she has achieved, are people acting like she wasn't running through her competition for more than six straight years, unbeaten in that stretch? We have short-term memories in MMA. What have you done for me lately? But in the case of Nunez, the accomplishments are wide-ranging. If you want to label Chris Cyborg or Valentina Shevchenko as the greatest female mixed martial artist ever, I can certainly understand. Both have fewer professional losses than Nunez. But keep in mind that the only losses that both have suffered in a major promotion have come at the hands of Nunez. In fact, the only two champions outside of the strawweight division that Nunez hasn't beaten are Pena and Nico Montano. And well, I think we can guess how that one likely would have gone. So what happens if Nunez proves on Saturday that the loss to Pena was an anomaly, like George St. Pierre losing to Matt Serra? Is everyone going to jump back on the GOAT bandwagon? And what if she loses to Pena again? Will she be looked at like Anderson Silva, the greatest in the history of her division but nothing more? The narrative will be altered permanently after UFC 277, where Nunez is a 3-1 favorite on the betting odds, but has to overcome the historical odds, where former champions granted an immediate rematch have had a 2-10 record overall. Ultimately, Nunez will decide her own fate in the collective consciousness of the MMA enthusiast, but let's show some respect to the Lioness, who after everyone kept asking how she stays motivated, how she doesn't get bored, may have needed the loss to Pena to prove once more that she will rise to the occasion and do what it takes to once again cement her GOAT status. I'm Aaron Bronstetter, and this is The Monologue. <laughs> That was the monologue, and before we get into a recap of UFC Fight Night Blades vs. Aspinall, which took place at the O2 Arena in London, England, let's talk a little bit about my past weekend, because it was a different weekend than my usual weekend, which involves watching whatever the UFC event is, following it live, tweeting about it, etc., etc., and of course spending time with my family. But that didn't happen this past weekend, because I was in Niagara Falls, New York, for the annual conference hosted by the Association of Boxing Commissions. And it's going on until Wednesday of this week. Uh, I believe maybe even Thursday. But uh, the first two days of the conference, Saturday and Sunday, had the refereeing course for mixed martial arts and the judging course for mixed martial arts. So because I live two hours away from Niagara Falls, New York, I thought, hey, you know, hop to give in a jump, drive over the border, go cover that. Uh, not necessarily cover it, but be there as a media member and learn expand my knowledge of mixed martial arts, of how this sport is legislated, of how judging takes place, refereeing takes place, you know, what the guidelines are, kind of training referees and judges need to go through, what they learn at these courses. It was a real eye-opener for me. I had taken the web course that Mark Goddard offers on his website, which I would highly recommend if you want a pretty solid all-around course for learning, refereeing, and judging. I think Mark Goddard does a phenomenal job. But to do it in person with 
some of the top judges and referees in the sport, I thought was uh, uh, an opportunity I couldn't miss out on. You know, I was thinking UFC London is going on at the same time. Should I be covering that? And I thought, when's the next time I'm going to get a chance to take a refereeing course and learn about an in-depth look at what the referees do in the cage? You know, what they what their instructions are, what they're looking for, how they break holds, all of that. I, I learned so much about the refereeing side. The judging side, I, I, I was quite familiar with going in, but even that, I learned a lot of different things. There was one particular thing that stood out to me that I will get to a little bit later on that I wasn't even that familiar with, uh, that Sal D'Amato had taught during the course. I also got to hang out with some of my colleagues. Uh, Jay Petrie from Sherdog was there. The hosts of the Cage Side Judges, or sorry, Couch Side Judges podcast, rather. Scott Fontana of the New York Post and uh, Dan Urban, a colleague of his, they host a weekly podcast that typically comes out on Sundays or Mondays where they look at the scorecards of the UFC, sometimes Bellator, and they try to find the dissenting scorecard where rounds aren't unanimous across the board for every judge. They will then watch that round, rewatch it, and through the eyes of the criteria, based on their angle, which is the live television angle, the broadcast angle, they will say which side they're on, the, the, the dissenting judge or the other two that are in agreement. And they'll break it down, and they'll explain their methodology, and I, th- I think it's a great, po- great idea for a podcast, and I enjoy listening to it. So I would recommend the, uh, the, ca- the Couch Side Judges podcast, which uh, comes out every single week. I don't know if it's going to come out this week because both of them were at the conference uh, taking the course. But great to spend some time with them. Really, uh, really good dudes. And I got to meet a lot of the different uh, officials from the different state commissions that I I didn't know of because, you know, again, if you're looking at somebody who's an inspector for the Arizona State Commission, I wouldn't know who that is. But I got to meet a lot of them, learn about their backgrounds in the sport. I think people would be shocked at as how, you know just how much knowledge of the sport and, and experience in the sport a lot of the different referees and judges have. Like I saw them going, going on, you know... Uh, the ground of a conference room together and applying holds on one another and doing, you know, real practical hands-on learning. It was just really, really cool to see and really great to pick the brains of a lot of the top officials in the sport as well as people that I had never met before that uh, I, I was unaware of, of their roles in, in the mixed martial arts space, in the combat sports space. So, in fact, the, uh, the, the director of the Puerto Rican Commission flew in from Puerto Rico to learn about refereeing and judging so that he can have good checks and balances with the the officials that they bring on on a week-to-week basis or whatever whenever they hold events so that was a really cool thing as well just the the people coming from all over this was the most attended conference annual conference that the uh, abc has ever done so great to see a lot of people having that interest in the legislative side they were thrilled to have members of the media there you know, a lot of people will talk about a lack of transparency and uh, officials being unable to speak with the media and things like that. I learned a little bit about why, but they were more than happy to have media members come and learn and be part of those conversations. So uh, kudos to the Association of Boxing Commissions for being great hosts and uh, putting this together. And I'm lucky that it was so close to home. I could just drive over a state a couple nights in Niagara Falls, and now I'm back in Toronto for two days. And then I'm flying out to Dallas on Wednesday, so been a fun week. So let me go through it with with everybody. So I, I got in on Friday in the afternoon, went record shopping for a little bit because I'd gotten in a little bit earlier than expected. Saturday, first day, up crack of dawn, six a.m., six thirty a.m. Went and had breakfast at the hotel. Nice continental breakfast, thanks to the other uh, folks at the uh, Hyatt Place in Niagara Falls. And uh, headed over to the... Oh, actually, on the Friday, I met up with uh, Dan and uh, Scott, who drove in that, that day and uh, had some uh, some food and drinks with them. That was nice. And then on the Saturday, registered, and it was the refereeing course on Saturday, which was uh, taught by uh, Blake Grice, who's uh, officiated every major promotion. And he told kind of his story of his path of how he became a, a referee on, at the highest level. Referees in New York, referees in California, and uh, several other state commissions. He's uh, He's been appointed officiating duties. Showed us some of the, uh, the fights he had actually officiated. And uh, the decisions that he had to make in those fights. And I thought that was 
really interesting as well. And uh, Jaron Vallel, Canada's own Jaron Vallel from Winnipeg, who uh, is one half of the instructing duo with Big John McCarthy for the command course, which is uh, a course that credentials judges and referees as well. So he's a wealth of knowledge on the sport. And I'm sure you've heard his name, seen him referee and judge in the past as well. He's been doing it for a long time. Former competitor as well. So is Blake Grice, another both former mixed martial arts competitors. So, you know, they talked a lot about how you really need to cut your teeth on the regional scene, go overseas, get as many reps as possible after becoming a credentialed referee in order to eventually referee big shows in certain jurisdictions. So you see a lot of the same referees for UFC events in Vegas, especially. You, you see the Herb Deans, you see the Jason Herzogs, you see the Mark Goddards. They want to appoint the referees that have the most experience for UFC events. And Blake's, like I said, has refereed UFC events as well, so is Jaron Vallel. He's, host, he's refereed main events before. But uh, it was cool to hear kind of what their, their, uh, their journey was. And I learned about, a lot about how, you know, the referee's job starts two, two three hours before the event even starts. They, they have to be there. They have to uh, do inspections, inspect the cage. You know, it's, they don't just get in the cage and referee a fight. They, before the fights, they go backstage. They talk to the fighters and the coaches. They explain what they're looking for. They explain what's legal, what's illegal. Uh, you know, they give instructions. And they talked a lot about different situations that they've encountered over the years. Uh, in and out of the cage, and what they've had to do under those circumstances. We learned that there are 28 different illegal acts in mixed martial arts. 28 of them. I learned why points aren't deducted as soon as someone grabs the cage, and why sometimes position isn't given to someone after they grab the cage. It's not protocol. Like The protocol is not to give an immediate point unless it really is having a strong impact on the fight. We learned, you know, about mouthpieces. We learned about the amount of grease people can have. We learned about, you know, when cage when fights are ended due to, you know, cage malfunctions and how hand wraps are are uh, inspected and fingernails and all kinds of stuff like that. The proper attire that people need to wear during fights, what they're not allowed to have on their attire during fights. Of course, UFC has uniforms, but if you're looking at the regional scene. You know, you're not allowed to have pockets. You're not allowed to have zippers. You know, things like that. And they talked about, you know, the kind of the personality that a referee needs to have in order to to be effective and to kind of be authentic, as you know, be be themselves, and make the fighters feel comfortable before fights. They talked about the the different roles of the the in ring referees. You know, I would have liked to learn a little bit more about the referees outside of the cage. That's uh, that's one thing I, I was a little bit more curious about, about inspectors, about uh, cage-side officials, etc. But, yeah, I learned 28 different fouls that can occur. And the, the different foul procedure, they basically have a, a foul procedure uh, tree, so to speak, like a, a graphic that shows what you what you are expected to do under in certain situations for, for certain fouls. I learned about the code of conduct that officials have to follow, both referees and judges, anybody who's appointed by a commission. It's very strict. <laughs> very, very strict. So that's why you don't see a lot of referees and judges doing media. So it's just very, very interesting to learn about. You know, I don't want to go through the whole course because I, I think if you want to take it, it would be good to support someone like Mark Goddard and learn from him. It's a great, it's a two-hour video. You you can watch it. Um and just learn learn about the craft of officiating and, and refereeing. So at the end of the day, we uh, we took a, a test. So I don't know the results of my test. I'll find out in the next couple of days about how I did. If I you know if I passed the refereeing test, wouldn't be shocked if I didn't. I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that the people that were in the room with me, a lot of them have refereed fights, amateur fights before, professional fights before. I'm just learning on the fly, right? But I hope I passed. It'd be nice if I did. I think I, I think I might have. We'll see. And then after the test, they, uh, like I mentioned, we did some really you know, good hands-on learning. Uh, people putting each other in different submissions, uh, doing sweeps, things like that. And then learning what position the referee should be in under all of these circumstances, what they're looking for, and how to break certain holes. What they're, how they're supposed to actually separate the fighters after a, a submission, after a tap, or at the end of a round. 
very interesting stuff because it's just it's a different perspective than I'm used to watching from. You know, when I'm watching an event, I'm not watching through the eyes of a referee. I'm watching, I'm consuming it. I'm watching it like you are at home. I mean, more from a media angle, but it's just really cool to learn the different. And look at, and I'm going to be able to look for a lot of different things that referees are doing now that uh, perhaps I didn't notice in the past. It's just really educational stuff, and I have a really strong, I have a much, much higher regard for how much goes into being an official after this past uh, weekend. I'll tell you that. Like, the amount of, the amount, first off, the amount of passion that everybody involved has. Like, judges don't get paid a lot of money, especially when you're a judge that's coming up. Like, the only reason you would want to become a judge is, is because you love the sport. Like, it's really the only, the sole reason why anybody would want to become a judge. You're not doing it to, for people to know who you are because everybody hates the judges. Nobody, nobody's, nobody's like, you know, that, that guy's a great judge every week. They're not sending them ni- nice messages every week. You know what, I really liked your scorecard. No, it's a, you're in the public eye. Very few people are going to agree with you because they don't realize that you're looking at it from different angles than they are. It's just, it's, it's a job that's basically a lose-lose situation. You barely get paid anything. It's the only reason why somebody would want to become a referee, for the most part, is because they love the sport and they want to help the sport grow. And they want to be part of this sport. And referees, you can say the same for. Because the, I mean, again, there's only a handful of re- referees that you're seeing regularly because they're the most experienced. They're the best that, that there is in the sport. And the same with the judges. That's why you see... A lot of the same judges, they're the ones with the most experience. And I got to talk to a lot of them and learn and ask them about their specific score, uh, scorecards and things, things like that as well. And ask them, you know, is this why you saw it this way? It's just very, again, very, very insightful day. Uh, sorry, weekend rather for me. So in terms, of, in terms of judging, I got to learn, you know, what, what makes a good judge, uh, the different things that uh, judges should do in, in terms of upholding professionalism. We reviewed the, uh, the scoring criteria, we watched a lot of different rounds separately, we gave our scorecards, we went around the room, people put up their hand for what they scored in a certain way, then explained why. We learned, of course, the scoring criteria and, and the, uh, the prioritized criteria, or sorry, priority criteria, and learned really that it's just an effective striking, an effective grappling. Like, like Sal D'Amato, who's refereed thousands of fights, says he couldn't remember a time where he had to go to effective aggressiveness, like the secondary criteria. He just says, like, you have five minutes of stuff to look at where you're going to be able to make a determination as to who was the more effective at, gripe, at striking and grappling based on, you know, your knowledge of the criteria and, and what you consider to be effective. Uh, we, we watched a lot of different videos. We learned about you know, what makes an effective strike, what effective grappling really is, about how certain sequences can really swing the momentum of a fight, and fighters can win rounds based on, like, one really strong single sequence. Just a very eye-opening, eye-opening um, course for me. I, I just, I loved it. I had such a, a, it was such a valuable experience for me as somebody who's growing as a, a journalist in the sport. We, of course, learned about 10-10 rounds, 10-9 rounds, 10-8 rounds. We watched what uh, some of the judges had given a 10-7 to in certain rounds. And then, uh, at, just like with the refereeing course, we did a test at the end of the day. And uh, I, again, don't know if I passed it. Um, we had to really, we had to explain how to finish certain submissions. We had to explain, um, and as somebody who doesn't have a very good, like I have a, a next-to-nothing grappling experience. So I had to explain how... And this is the part that if I if I fail this test, it's because of this. But explain how to finish certain submissions. Like we'd look at the submission that's being a picture of a submission being set up and had to explain how to finish that submission. And we had to, you know, they showed us pictures of different submissions. What's the name of this submission? They showed us videos of different highlights with different submissions. What's the name of this submission? Really interesting stuff, honestly. Really, really cool. And then when we, when we did the test, we were asked to score certain rounds. They showed us five different rounds of fights. So 25 minutes of the test is actually, there were amateur rounds too. So about 20, minute, 20 minutes of the, the test was just us watching rounds and then having to score them at the end and then explain our justification for scoring them a certain way. So yeah, it's just all around a really, really cool experience. And I got to, uh, I got to chat with um, you know Mike Mazzulli who runs the Association of Boxing Commissions really nice guy really again everybody that I was there talking to were so passionate about the sport so 
you know, when people say, no, the judges don't care, or, you know, they're costing this fighter a paycheck, and, you know, the, fighter, the, the judges aren't any good, take courses. Like, learn about what they do. That's all I ask. Learn about what they do. Learn about the process. And also learn about, I mean, also consider how they're watching the fight and that it's different from how you're watching it. They're watching it from a certain angle. There could be a referee standing right in front of them. Like we watched fights that were shot from a certain angle that a judge would be sitting at. And you, and you, you, there's parts of it that you just don't even see what's happening. Like you don't see what strikes are being landed. It's very difficult to score. Like, and that's why if you see why three judges have different scorecards, because they have three different vantage points. Like they're looking at it completely differently from one another. And that's why there are three judges so that each of them can have a unique viewpoint, and more often than not, two out of the three judges, if one of them misses something, will have it covered in their mind. I also learned about the process in which judges actually, in their mind, of how they visualize how, the, how a fight's being scored in real time, and, and how they're swinging it for one fight or the other. Just, uh, again, so it's such a valuable, valuable experience. So I wanted to share that with, uh, with you, and just talk about what that experience was like, and... Again, just to, to say that I really respect the officials in this sport and, and have an even further respect for them after these last couple of days. So let's move on to UFC Fight Night Blades vs. Aspinall. And I will preface this by saying that I did watch some of it while I was doing, you know, during lulls in the course. I had, I had it kind of playing in the background as well while I was doing the course and, you know, while I was taking notes. And every now and then I'd look over. So I didn't really get a full... It's not the same kind of recap as you'll get from me when I'm actually really watching in depth the main card I watched in depth and then a lot of the undercard stuff I'll just give you some quick impressions on them uh, Nicholas Dalby versus Claudia Silva Silva got off to a good start but then Dalby really picked up the volume and uh, you know Claudia Silva is you know someone who I think you know his striking just really hasn't caught up over the years, like it, it's it's really a step behind. So when he gets into these striking battles, a lot of the time he's just he's a little bit too slow. Um, I'm not sure if we'll see him in the UFC again, but uh, good win for Nicholas Dalby. Uh, Victoria Leonardo defeats Mandy Baum. She was just seemed like she was landing the bet, the more crisper strikes. She was the more effective grappler. Um, good win for her. She needed that one. She had some really tough matchups early on. Like if you look at she she was on Contender Series. She uh, beat Chelsea Hackett, got a contract. First two fights: Manon Fioro and Melissa Gatto. And I don't think a lot of people knew how good Melissa Gatto was going into that fight. She, like, Melissa Gatto looks like the real deal. I know she lost to Tracy Cortez, but she looked pretty good in that fight. Got a win over Sajara Eubanks, right? Like, wasn't expected to win that fight at all. And then Mandy Baum, a little bit of a... An opponent that's more on her level, I would say. That's more, that was a more winnable fight for her, for sure. Jai Herbert defeats Kyle Nelson. Very close fight. Neither guy was really taking a lot of risks, and I feel like... Kyle Nelson, if he would have taken a couple more risks, might have been able to catch Jai Herbert, but uh, I thought Herbert was the, the clear winner here on the scorecards. Hopefully we get to see Muskoka's own, the monster, Kyle Nelson back in it again. I think he looked a lot healthier at lightweight. I think it's the right weight class for him. Um, just a tough opponent going on to his, you know, his opponent's home soil and trying to beat a guy who I think is just a little bit further along than Kyle at this stage of his career, but I think Kyle Nelson is still a, certainly a UFC caliber fighter. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what his next fight looks like if he's able to get one. I know he's on a new contract, so hopefully they give him at least one more. Uh, Muhammad Mokhaev defeats Charles Johnson. Unanimous decision. I mean, this was just takedown, takedown, rinse, repeat. There was barely any striking in this fight. In fact, Mokhaev officially landed as many takedowns as significant strikes in the fight. 12 significant strikes, 12 takedowns. Uh, I mean, a clear win for him. Uh, Had Charles Johnson landed some more strikes, he might have been able to to be in it a little bit more, but... uh, Solid performance by Mokhaev against the guy that was very underrated in Charles Johnson. And I think I think Charles Johnson will certainly be a ranked fighter in the flyweight division at some point in time. But uh, really given a tough task against uh, a guy who, you know, I think Charles Johnson will be ranked. I think Mokhaev will be a champion. Like there's a, there's, a, there's levels. And I think I think Mokhaev at the at his current age, 21, 22, whatever he is at this point in time, like he's got a lot of time to get better. And he's already really, really good. Jonathan Pierce, I think he had the most impressive performance of anybody on this card, JSP. Maquan Amir Khani was trying to take him down, and Jonathan Pierce was just Travis Brown elbowing him into oblivion. That was, I think, my only tweet that made it onto the broadcast was because that, that was the only one that I tweeted kind of in real time. We were in a bit of a break during the uh, the course, and uh, I just said that was an extremely violent round for Jonathan Pierce in that first round. He looked phenomenal. It was 
A lot of people I heard this week saying that they thought the value was on Amir Khani, that Pierce was way too big of a favorite. I actually disagreed. I liked Jonathan Pierce. I thought that Jonathan Pierce was going to win this fight, and uh, he proved that he certainly was worth the price tag on him uh, on the betting market. Nathaniel Wood against Charles Rosa. This was one that looked a little bit closer when I was watching it than uh, the scorecards would indicate, uh, but uh, this was one that I didn't get to to watch much of. It's just kind of in the corner of my eye. It looked like Rosa was doing some good things during it, but uh, Nathaniel Wood, the clear victor. In fact, had a 10-8 round as well. Can't really comment on why. Again, I didn't really get to a a good uh, look at this one. Mark Diakizi, who is now a wrestler, (laughs) takes down Demir Hodzovic and controls this fight. Two thirty twenty six scorecards in a thirty twenty seven. Daikisi, you know this 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 could be his new uh, his new style. Just wrestle people down and keep them there. I mean, Hadzovic has had his uh, defensive grappling exposed on uh, several occasions, so this seemed like a pretty clear path for Daikisi, and I think that's why he was more than a two to one favorite in this one. I chickened out. I'll admit it. I chickened out right before Ludovic Klein came out against Mason Jones. I was going to tweet out, "This is a crazy line." Ludovic Klein should not be this big of an underdog. Like he's, he's a really good fighter. I've been high on Ludovic Klein for a long time. I think this is the right weight class for him. I was shocked that he was as big of an underdog as he was, and I really should have said something. But I chickened out. You never want to be the guy that picks a plus 380 or whatever underdog or whatever he was, and they just get completely steamrolled, and people are like, oh, what was this guy? What did the, why did this guy think this guy had a chance? That's, my, that's the reason why I didn't post it, and I should have. So apologies to anybody who could have made money on Ludovic Klein, if they would have tailed my hypothetical pick that I never tweeted out. My apologies. But Ludovic Klein looking great at 155. Tough test for Mason Jones. I mean, this, Mason Jones took this on short notice. That, that's another reason. I just thought Ludovic Klein, he had a full camp. I, I think he's a really good fighter. And uh, he proved that. Volkan Uzdemir defeats Paul Craig. This was a fun one. It was 30-27 across the board for Uzdemir, but Paul Craig did his darndest to win that fight. <laughs> he was... He was pulling guard. He was trying to get Uzdemir into his guard for long enough where he could do something. This was kind of what I feared. You know, I think Paul Craig, by submission, is always kind of a safe play because that's how he wins his fights. But I knew that Volkan Uzdemir had a really high fight IQ in comparison to a lot of the different people that Paul Craig had been able to exploit. Not that, like, Jamal Hill doesn't have a high fight IQ. I think he has a very high fight IQ, and just he just kind of got caught and got injured. But uh, I, I just had a feeling that Uzdemir was going to know what to do in the different situations that Paul Craig put him in. And uh, that is what happened. So Paul, uh, Volkan Uzdemir gets the win. I, I, I was surprised, actually, that Paul Craig was able to. Like, my thought going into this was, like, this is going to end early. It's going to end in the first or second. And it's either going to be Craig catching Volkan in a submission or Craig unsuccessfully trying to submit Uzdemir, who just lands big shots on him until he puts Craig out. Uh, that wasn't how it played out. So uh, Volkan Uzdemir goes the distance, 30-27 across the board. Molly McCann defeats Hannah Goldie. Molly McCann's like a finisher now. I mean, I should look at... I'm going to pull this up right now. She might have like the, the second most finishes behind Shevchenko now in uh, women's flyweight history. I'm going to pull this up. Let's see. Very curious about how, who has the most finishes in women's flyweight history because I know that the, those who have them, there's not a lot of them. So let's see. Finishes. Six finishes. Okay, so McCann, McCann only has two. So she's, it's more KOs. That's what I was thinking of. KO wins. She's tied for second with two. I mean, like there's just not that many KO finishes, and she's now got two in a row. Um, puts Hannah Goldie out in the first round. You know, Hannah looked like she was about to have some success. Molly thwarts it and then just starts throwing and banging on her, and it's over. Spinning back elbow punches, and Goldie goes down, and that's all she wrote. And Molly McCann jumps out of the cage and celebrates, and it's going wild. So Molly McCann has some real momentum now. I'm curious to see where she's going to be ranked if, if she moves up. But she, uh, she asked for Antonina Shevchenko. That's a perfect matchup right now for Molly McCann. Perfect matchup. Because I think that, uh, you know, McCann will, will definitely have the, I think we'll have really good boxing, better better power striking. Whereas Antonina is a really good technical striker. I think from a, a grappling perspective, Antonina might have a slight advantage there. But that's a really good test for Molly McCann, I think. Like, I think Goldie's kind of on the lower end of the division. No disrespect. Um, but I mean, you know, look at her UFC record. She has, uh, she's one and three now with her only win being against Emily Whitmire, who's now not in the UFC anymore. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see if she even comes back. But I mean, I think that says, says it all about that kind of matchmaking. I think Molly was kind of given, Molly was given the only fighter, I think in UFC history that had a shorter reach than she does. <laughs> so, you know, the, the T-Rex division. 
But Molly McCann looking great and uh, gets gets a first-round victory. Nikila Krilov, you know, I'm hearing people say this was tough to watch. And yeah, it was. Puts out Alexander Gustafsson just, uh, just over one minute into the first round. You know, and they were they were showing highlights we were watching uh, during the course today. Some Gustafsson against Glover Teixeira highlights. And you just see how Gustafsson is just picking apart the, you know, most recent light heavyweight champion before the current one. The guy who just lost the title in Glover Teixeira. And Gustafsson just having his way with him. And then you see... And then you saw that you see that one day after you see Nikita, Nikita Krylov just completely put Alexander uh, Gustafsson's lights out. So we'll see if Gustafsson comes back. I, I'm thinking he probably retires at this rate. I know Daniel Cormier said he doesn't like to see Gustafsson lose in this kind of fashion. Thinks he should retire. But you know, the, you know, Gustafsson has retired previously. Maybe he just does it again, and I think that that would be the right thing to do at this at this stage. Patty Pimblett defeats. Jordan Levitt. This was a good test for Patty Pimblett. A very winnable fight for Pimblett. You know, I don't think it's somebody who is going to elevate him into the rankings or anything along those lines, but somebody who's going to test his grappling. And we all know Patty Pimblett is a great grappler, but I think Jordan Levitt is a really, really high, high-level grappler. And Patty Pimblett was able to outgrapple him at a, lot of, at a lot of different junctures in this fight. And Levitt was having a good amount of success in the first round. But uh, Patty ends up submitting... The ground specialist in Levitt in the second round and uh, looked really good. I thought on the feet, Patty had the advantage. I think every judge gave Patty the first round. I, I gave him the first round as well, but Levitt put him into a lot of troublesome positions. And, you know, Patty, I think, doing a good job by using his platform to uh, shine a light on men's health that uh, a good friend of his had taken their own life this past week leading up to the fight. And Patty was saying, you know, we need to talk, men need to talk to each other. I mean, here at TSN, of course, our parent company, Bell does Bell, let's talk day every year. It's a message that we are very passionate about that, uh, you know, one of my mentors in this space, Michael Landsberg, is very passionate about is uh, Sick Not Weak is his organization, his charity that uh, raises mental health awareness and about how mental illness is is a sickness. It's not a weakness. It's uh, something that people are diagnosed with just like you're diagnosed with having pneumonia, you know it's uh, it's the real deal, man. It's it's incredibly sad to see so many people uh, take their own lives. It, just in this world in general, it's uh, it's horrible. And uh, Patty Pimblet made a great point. It's like you know, if you're having a moment where you're questioning whether or not you're loved or people want to, you know, whether the world is better off without you, don't let a fleeting moment or a fleeting thought be something that causes, you know, absolute anguish to your close ones, to your friends and relatives. It's just, it's not worth it. I mean, I know that at the end of the day, sometimes it can be, you know, mental health and mental illness related. So uh, I think Patty makes a great point, you know. Men in general think that there's a, a strength to not being vulnerable, and I actually think it's quite the opposite. I think that if you show vulnerability, if you're willing to talk to people about things that are, causing you mental health troubles, you're actually being incredibly strong. So that's the stigma that he talks about is that a lot of us are afraid to talk to our friends, our family members about what's troubling us. And uh, I think that it's it's very positive for him to send that kind of message. So kudos to him for that. And I, I know he was also fighting for a young, a young man whose uh, family sadly had to bury him before years old, had cancer. It's just you know that's a lot of that's a lot of weight coming into a fight. So for Patty Pimblett to get a win under those circumstances in front of a home crowd is uh, it's nothing short of remarkable. So good for him, and uh, I look forward to watching his continued growth in the sport. Still in his twenties, has a lot a lot of room for growth and a lot to improve. He's still, I mean that that fight showed that he still has a lot of room for improvement. So he'll just keep continue continuing to take the steps to do so. Jack. Hermansen, as he uh, told me it is pronounced. Hermansen defeats Chris Curtis. A pretty one-sided fight, really. I mean, Chris Curtis took this on very short notice against a, a top middleweight. And I think that he was uh, the favorite or or close to the, you know, it was an even-money fight, basically. I think that at times this past week he was the favorite in this one. Just goes, just goes to show the uh, level of respect that Chris Curtis has earned in recent years after three straight losses in the PFL and announcing his retirement, coming back, 
winning seven straight and doing so in like what is it like less than like two two and a half years or something along those lines i think i calculated he was fighting every 67 days or something like that so he has the respect of the mixed martial arts community but kind of a flat performance from him that i think he will learn a lot from also he he admitted his you know his behavior at the end of the fight kind of a lack of sportsmanship was not a good look and took some pictures with jack after the event jack jack is a super nice guy if you ever talk to jack he's just like he's a real sweetheart of a man so (laughs) <laughs> it's tough to be uh, to be mad at someone like that. That's uh, just such a class act. And then, of course, the main event. Very, very... I mean, two two weeks in a row, really, we've seen these awful injuries and high, high-level, high-stakes fights. Last week with Yair Rodriguez defeating Brian Ortega due to dislocated shoulder in the first round, and now just 15 seconds into the first round, Tom Aspinall steps backward and suffers a knee injury. And, you know, Curtis Blades was beat up about it, too, because he wanted to prove that, you know, that, that he he's going to be able to beat a guy with the, the kind of hype that Tom Aspinall has. And it is, of course, a loss on Tom Aspinall's record sets him back a lot. And for someone who relies on the kind of explosiveness and speed and timing that he does, a knee injury like that is not going to be good. It's just going to it's going to it's going to potentially slow the growth of his career and uh, and hinder his his incredible upside potentially. Not necessarily. He's still in his twenties. Can recover, but uh, seeing an injury like that, depending on what the injury is, I don't. I don't think it's been disclosed just yet the severity of the injury. I saw some doctors uh, speculate that it was a torn MCL. Another person said it might have been a leg injury, dislocation of some sort. I don't really want to speculate on that, but uh, did not look good. <laughs> Let's just say that did not look good. And uh, you know, if not for Patty Pimplett and Molly McCann getting the kind of wins that they did on the main card. I think a lot of people would have been unhappy, very drunk and very unhappy at the end of that card. And uh, I'm sure some people still were, but at least they had some silver lining for that. But uh, yeah, I mean, we got a credit as a win for Curtis Blades. And uh, I think that he was on the right page when he said he should face the winner of Gone and Tuivasa in September. That fight, of course, that's sorry, that fight's going to be in September. He should face the winner of, of that fight at some point in time. I think he, he understands that the heavyweight division right now is occupied by Francis Ngannou, John Jones, and Stipe Miocic at the very top. But that being said, who knows what's going to happen with Francis Ngannou? Like his contract could end at the end of this year. He could walk away and the belt could be vacated. If Stipe isn't ready to fight John Jones or for whatever reason something happens, there's an injury, Curtis Blades could step in there. And so could the winner of Gon and, and, uh, and Tuivasa, depending on the performance they put on. But... Yeah, I mean, Curtis Blades, solid, I mean, he's a solid fighter. He's an excellent fighter. So, certainly deserves to not have anything taken away from him despite the result of the fight. You know, how the fight ended, it's still, it's still credited as a win against a ranked guy. Not exactly the way that you want to win a fight, but a win's a win. So, uh, that's, the, that's the way I look at it when it comes to, to Curtis Blades. And, of course, UFC 277 is this Saturday. At the American Airlines Center in Dallas, Texas, I will be in attendance for this event. Two titles on the line. The women's bantamweight champion. Champion versus champion. Nobody's talking about it that way. It is, of course, Nunez is the, uh, the champion of the very lame duck featherweight division, which has like three fighters in it. But still, you look at the poster, both, both of them have belts on their shoulder. And, of course, the uh, interim flyweight championship between Brandon Moreno and Kai Kara-France. Rematch between them as well, so two rematches. One, of course, uh, more recent history. As I mentioned off the top, show some respect to Amanda Nunes. I mean, everybody's talking about Nunes like, oh, she was never any that good. She was never that good. She's not the greatest of all time. How many consecutive fights has she beaten a former champion from either from a major promotion? If you look at it, it's been every fight, aside from Pena, who she lost to. But prior to that loss, prior to that loss, every fight since 2016, and you can even go back to 2015, has been against the title challenger or a champion from another major promotion. Invicta, whatever, Strike Force. Beats Megan Anderson, former Invicta champion. Beats Felicia Spencer, former Invicta champion. Beats Jermaine Durandame, uh, former interim featherweight champion. Beats Holly Holm. Former bantamweight champion. 
beats Chris Cyborg at the time the featherweight champion and uh of course one of the i mean if you don't think amanda nunez is the greatest it's chris cyborg i mean it's one a one b in my opinion you could put shevchenko in the mix too i guess speaking of which we'll get to her in a second raquel pennington i mean she wasn't a title challenger before she fought nunez so that, that's kind of a that's probably an example of somebody who was never a, a former champion but i digress valentina shevchenko of course, is Valentina Shevchenko, one of the greatest of all time. Ronda Rousey, one of the greatest of all time. You know, at the, at the time, you can call her one of the greatest of all time. And perhaps the, the great, like, up there as being the greatest of all time. You know, in the conversation for being the greatest of all time at that point in time, at 2016. Despite coming off a loss. And that being her last fight. But still, former champion. In Strike Force and the UFC. Misha Tate, former champ. Well, I guess was the champion at the time that Nunes beats her. And then Shevchenko again before that. And then Sarah McMahon, who had fought for the UFC title before that, too. And, of course, you can go back even further. You got Shayna Baszler, never fought for a title, but solid fighter. Kat Zingano, fought, had, uh, I guess after this, went on to fight for a title. Durand, maybe we mentioned. Uh, Sarah Delelio, I she lost to. But went over Alexis Davis, who fought for the title. Went over Julia, uh, Julia Budd, who was the longtime band, uh, featherweight champion. Or, sorry, band... Uh, Featherweight champion, yeah. And, sorry, in Bellator. Bellator. Bellator featherweight champion. Tongue twister. I mean, the resume is unbelievable. So for people to dismiss her because she lost one fight to Juliana Pena. We don't know what she was going through going into that fight. We don't know what's going on. I mean, the world's been on her shoulders for a while and she's been answering the call every single time. I mean, she's a 3-1 to favorite in this fight, even though she just lost to Pena. Why is that? Like, why? Why is she a 3 to 1 favorite? Because she's the greatest of all time. Like, again, if you don't think it's her and you say it's Cyborg or Shevchenko, sure, but she's beaten both of them. Like, if, you, if you're going to say those are the best, like, Nunes has wins over them. Like, I mean, I don't know what you, want, what you want me to say. You can make a great case for Chris Cyborg or, or Shevchenko. Both fantastic, great champions. I mean, before Chris Cyborg lost to... Amanda Nunes, she hadn't lost for 13 plus years. She was a champion in every major promotion, aside from Bellator, which she eventually became the champion of. I mean, you could say it's Chris Cyborg. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with you. But the facts are facts. I mean, she has a first round fight within, first round win within one minute over Chris Cyborg. Never got the rematch, but obviously circumstances prevented that. And she has two wins over Shevchenko. And you can say, oh, well, it's controversial. The rematch was the, the championship fight was controversial. Split decision. It's a close fight. You can't definitively say Shevchenko won that fight. Or that Nunes won that fight. Close fight. But Nunes won. Got the nod. And beat her again prior to that unanimously. And yeah, I know it's not Shevchenko's... The weight class where Shevchenko earned her flowers, you know, the, the, feather, the flyweight division. But, I mean, you, listen, you got to look at this resume. It's an unbelievable resume. That stretch from 2015 to when she lost to Pena, six plus years, is as good a stretch in mixed martial arts as anyone has in terms of the name value, in terms of the resume value. And she was like leaps and bounds ahead of them. She's like nobody came close to beating her in that stretch. Nobody. Except for Shevchenko, I guess, if you split the decision. But that's the closest anybody came was losing a split decision. So I mean, let's 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 just let's just not put one fight as something that signifies something it isn't. If Peña beats her again, maybe you could say well she was the greatest of all time for a time, but then the wheels fell off. Nunes is still only 34 years old, she just turned 34. Like just over a month ago. Pena, I believe, is uh, is 32. So she's she's turning 33. So they're not even that far apart in age. And Pena has had a really up and down career. So I'm eager to see how this one plays out. Honestly, I like I I could not pick a side here. I think that if you're going to, you look at some props. the The current props aren't out yet. So as it gets later in the week, I'll put up my TSN edge picks. I, I do like it. the fight does not go to a decision. Like, if you can get fight does not go to a decision at, like, whatever, minus 200, something along those lines. 
even though it's a a women's fight, it's still in the bantamweight division where there is a higher finishing rate. It's a five-round fight. We saw how the first fight went. I think Pena knows that's probably how she has to beat her, is just be in her face and pressure her. I don't think she's going to win if she doesn't do that, honestly. Like, I think that if she tries to like have a conservative game plan, Nunez will beat her. I think Nunez is the more skilled fighter. But I think that from a, a matchup standpoint, from a strategy standpoint, Pena did exactly what you should do against somebody as revered as Amanda Nunez. I think it surprised Amanda Nunez. Like, she was like, okay, well, we're in a dogfight here. And typically I don't lose those, but Pena wouldn't go away, and she got the win. And at plus 235, if you watch my piece on SportsCenter that's airing this week, fighters trying to regain a title in an immediate rematch are 2-10. and 10. And prior to Figueredo doing it this past year, like this year in January, it hadn't been done for, I think, 13 years prior. Like, the odds from a a historical standpoint are stacked very much against Nunes. So let's see. Let's see what you can do. It's a fun fight. Brandon Moreno is a uh, minus-220 favorite against Kai Cara France. Another one that's very interesting. This one, I think, might actually go to a decision. And uh, the early odds indicate that that's uh, the way that it's it's looking. But... uh, I also think that there's probably a, a decent chance that it doesn't. I mean, these guys are both action fighters. So I think at some point in time, someone could find a finish. I wouldn't be comfortable letting it be over or the under. You know, like, I, I think that this fight could really go a, a variety of ways. This is a very... I think the line is exactly where it should be, too. If anything, you might... like you, you might If you like Moreno, you could probably parlay him somewhere, but... Uh, or even take him straight, minus, minus 220, according to our friends at FanDuel. Just a really, really fun fight. But uh, I think at this stage, Moreno's the superior fighter. That said, Kai Carfans looked really good. And it's a flyweight fight. And you've got a lot of really strong talent at the top of that division. So uh, that, that could be a really fun one. Speaking of which, Derek Lewis against Sergey Pavlovich. That's, that has fun fight written all over it. Lewis, a small favorite, minus 120. Pavlovich, minus 106 at the time of this recording. I think the right person is favored, but I mean, Pavlovich is a really good fighter. Really tough fighter. But what happens if Derek Lewis swarms him and, and starts throwing big shots? Like, has Pavlovich faced anything like that before? That's the one, that thing that gives me pause. Because I think that Pavlovich might be the more skilled fighter, but Derek Lewis is always so underrated. And there's kind of a, an algorithm for Derek Lewis. If he fights somebody who's like, what, not in the top 10 or not in the top 5, typically wins those fights. More often than not, wins those fights. So, I understand why he's the favorite here. He's also in his home state. Which, I mean, in his home city, he hasn't always performed that well. And I think the last time he fought in Dallas was that kind of snooze fest against, uh, I think it was Aldir Latifi. Where Lewis got the win, I think he, I think he, that was the right call. But it was not the prettiest fight. Malcolm Ankalaev, minus 480 against Anthony Smith, plus 330. Steep, steep price. I actually thought this was going to be a closer odds based on Ankalaev's last performance, but... At the same time, like, how does Anthony Smith win this fight? He's a really strong striker. Could get, could, could rock Ankalaev and do something from there, but Ankalaev is a tough out, man. Like, that guy, that guy could be the champion one day. I, I still, if, if you ask me to bet at even money, yes or no, will he be a champion one day? I would put money on yes all day. And if it was minus 150, I'd probably put money on yes. Like, I think Ankalaev at some point in time is going to be the champion of this division. But Anthony Smith has fought for the championship and, you know, had a good account for himself. And has looked good recently. So, I'll, I will never write off Anthony Smith. He's an incredible fighter. And uh, at light heavyweight, he really, you know, that was a real revelation for him. To move to light heavyweight and do what he's been able to do. Uh, Drew Dober, minus 245. Rafael, or Rafael Alves, rather, plus 186. I like the Dober side here. I think Dober is somebody who is worth parlaying. I think he's just a, a far superior fighter than, than Rafael Alves at this stage. I think he's just fought the way better competition. He's looked really good against really high-level competition. Like, what was the line in his last fight against McKinney? I think he was minus 150 against McKinney. I, I, like, and you look at how that fight went. I mean, he did get tagged. And Alves does have heavy hands. So, I mean, if Dober's... And Dober has a, a, a great chin in terms of, like, he's, he's, a, he's a very chiseled chin. And it's held up for him well over the years. 
As long as his chin holds up, I think he's going to beat Alves, no problem. Alexandre Pantoja, minus 164. Alex Perez, plus 128. This line's probably where it should be, and if anything, you might be getting some value on Pantoja because uh, I think Perez is an excellent fighter, but this is... Uh, Pantoja is so well-rounded, so good. And, uh, you know, Perez has had a bit of a rough go in terms of fights falling through. It hasn't fought in several years now. Um, I, I, I would take Pantoja here, personally. But I, I know Perez is tough as nails, so it could be an interesting one. Semmelsberger, Matthew Semmelsberger, minus 174. Alex Morono, plus 136. Tough fight to call. I think the line is basically where it should be. If anything, you're getting some value on Morono. But, uh, you know, it's in his home state. He's got a good gas tank. I thought Semmelsberger could have lost that fight if not for A.J. Fletcher's gas tank kind of not holding up over the course of that last fight. But uh, but if you put Alex Morono against A.J. Fletcher, I'd probably favor A.J. Fletcher. So who knows? Uh, Dante Mays against Hamdi Abdel-Wahab. I don't know much about Abdel-Wahab, so I can't really give you uh, a good read on this fight just yet. If it's on my TSN Edge picks, then you'll know that I've done some research on it, but I, I haven't had a chance just yet. Ihor Poteria who uh, looked good on the contender series, minus 170. Nick Negu Mirianu, plus 132. And uh, Negu Mirianu has, uh, has looked good in his fights, man. He look, he look, he's been really, I think, overachieved in his career. Don't really have a great read on this one either. I, I, I haven't seen, po- I mean, since contender series, I don't think Poteria has fought. And I remember him looking good, but I'd have to go back and look. And a recently added fight, Mike Morales, Michael Morales, minus 575 against Adam Fugit, plus 445. That is how it's pronounced. I've gone and watched the videos. I know it's a fun last name to say if you uh, decide to play with it. But Morales, is, I think this guy is going to be a really, really strong fighter who's going to make a lot of noise in the UFC. And I understand why he's this big of a favorite. But I don't know much about Fugit, so I can't really make it great. Again, it's like Abdel Wahab, late notice replacement that I just don't know much about. Uh, I don't know if this... I, I think this fight is still on the card. Or uh, Orion Kosi taking on Blood Diamond, training partner, of course, of uh, Israel Adesonia Eal from uh, City Kickboxing. Uh, you know, Blood Diamond was kind of exploited by grappling in his last fight, and that's what Kosi's good at. I understand why the line is the way it is, but... Uh, I mean, it's hard to... Uh, if, you, if you ever see somebody from City Kickboxing as an underdog, it's always tempting. And he's, uh, I think, an even bigger underdog against Kosi than he was against Jeremiah Wells, who, who just looked phenomenal in the UFC, so... Take that for what you will. Dracar Close, minus 225. Rafa Garcia, plus 172. Not Rafa. Rafa, because he's not Brazilian, as far as I can remember. I think he's from Mexico. Yeah, Dracar looked really good in his last fight. Um, I always like taking Dracar by decision, but he actually won inside the distance in his last fight. So we'll see what that line looks like. If, if you can get a good odds on... If you can get close at like even money at uh, or better by decision, I would go that route for sure. Uh, Jocelyn Edwards, minus 125. Gion Kim, minus 102. I like the Kim side here. I, I think Kim's been looking better and better with each fight. I wasn't super impressed with what I saw from Edwards in her last fight, um, which was fairly recently as well. And it's actually, I think Gion Kim is actually a training partner of Ramona Pasquale, who uh, Edwards beat in her last fight. So she's probably been a key training partner for Pasquale against Edwards, and they've probably been emulating Edwards for months. So something to keep in mind going into that one. All right, there you go. Preview. Complete. UFC 277. Go to UFC.ca, or sorry, TSN.ca, not UFC.ca. TSN.ca slash UFC for uh, all of my coverage over the course of this week. If you want to watch all of the different uh, video interviews I'm going to be doing, that's where you'll find them. You'll also find them at Twitter.com slash Aaron Bronstetter. Appreciate you tuning in. You can subscribe to the show at uh, any place you get your podcasts, you know, whatever, podcast addict or Pocket Casts or Stitcher, of course, uh, the uh, iTunes podcast app, Apple Podcasts, rather. Used to be on iTunes. Wherever you get, wherever you get your apps, wherever you store, you get your podcasts. You you can find the TSN MMA show. If this is your first time listening, if you're listening on radio, please feel free to subscribe for a uh, usually a an extended version of what you hear on radio at uh, TSN Radio in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm trying to think if there's any news I didn't cover. Well, I mean, UFC 280 is getting very stacked. In fact, it just added another banger of a fight that is uh, moving over from the Paris card. You now have Caitlin Jukagian taking on Manon Fioro at UFC 280 on top of 
Oliveira versus Makhachev, Darius versus Gamrat, Bilal Muhammad versus Brady, Bantamweight Championship bout between Sterling and Dillashaw, Piotr Jan against Sean O'Malley, Marina Rodriguez against Amanda Lemos, and uh, Zubairo Tuhugov against uh, Lucas Almeida. You know, one of those fights doesn't really belong in terms of uh, the you know rankings and whatnot, but still a, a good matchup. Awesome fights. Awesome, awesome card. Can't wait to see what's going on. There's rumors of a uh, Chandler versus Poirier fight. If I had to guess, I think that'll either be the... the uh, if, if they're going to do it on short notice, it'll be a co-main event at 278. Or they do it at 279 in Vegas as a co-main event to uh, Hamza versus Nate Diaz. Let's see what the odds are at uh, right now for that. Hamza is minus 1,100 on FanDuel against Nate Diaz. That says Nick Diaz actually here, but it, it is Nate Diaz, right? Bet five odds and making a mistake here, I imagine. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't want to see Nick Diaz against uh, Hamza Shemaev. Trying to think if there's any other uh, any other news that I um, might be missing that I might want to cover. Looking through the headlines. Oh, uh, there was a good Bell- decent Bellator card. You can see two, uh, Bellator 283, rather. We saw... Um, some really solid performances. I mean, Jason Jackson completely neutralized Douglas Lima. Uh, Lima was taking his gloves off. I don't know if we're going to see Diego, uh, sorry, Douglas Lima rather compete again. Tofik Musayev. I mean, I feel terrible for Sydney Outlaw. Sydney Outlaw was supposed to fight for the title. And Tofik Musayev finishes him quick. Quick. So uh, Sydney Outlaw's out of the mix now. <laughs> he was supposed to fight for the title on this card, the main event. And, uh, Musayev came in and uh, made quick work of him. Uh, Usman Nurmagomedov defeats Chris Gonzalez. Solid win, of course. Usman just kept con- continuing to uh, rack up wins. Already 15-0. He's going to catch up to Khabib soon. And he's still only like, what, 20, 24 or something. Lorenz Larkin against uh, Muhammad Burhamov was an interesting one. Larkin lands what looked to be a 10-6 elbow to the back of the head. But... It might have might have been just outside the crown area. Might not have been an exact 12-6, but still. Says he can't continue. Ends up being a no contest instead of a disqualification, so Larkin kind of got lucky in that regard. Marcelo Golm against Davion Franklin. If you want to watch a fun heavyweight fight with lots of ebbs and flows, this one's for you. Go back and watch Marcelo Golm against Davion Franklin. This was a fun fight. Dalton Rasta against Romero Cotton. High-level stuff. Dalton Rasta gets the win. Really impressive. Very impressed by Dalton Rasta. Vita Artiega. I was surprised after the fact I saw that she was an underdog in this fight. I would have, I would have probably recommended a play on her against uh, Vanessa Porto. Gets the win. Roman Feraldo. This guy's like a human highlight film. This guy's just putting on, throwing flying knees, finishing people, throwing all kinds of crazy stuff. Hasn't fought the best competition just yet, but I think this guy's going to have a, a, a really good career. And uh, yeah, those were some of the big fights at Bellator and uh, a fun, fun card overall. On the uh, the Bellator side of things, I don't know if you got a chance to catch up. Dana White Contender Series starts on Tuesday as well. First uh, episode of Dana White Contender Series. Joey Piper against Ozzy Diaz, Acacio dos Santos against Anton Turkaj, Dennis Bazukia, a uh, one of the prodigies of Matt Serra and Ray Longo, taking on Kaleo Romero, Alessandro Costa against Andres Luna Mart- Martinetti. I always say, if you're interested in these fights and learning more about these fighters, Sean Bitter is a great writer in terms of prospects in MMA. Look up Sean Bitter. I think he writes for Cage Side Press. I hope I didn't get that wrong. But he uh, he does prospect. Uh, he does event previews for these cards and has a really good knowledge of the prospects. If you're interested in seeing matchups, maybe getting some advice if you're looking to uh, to go on FanDuel Canada and uh, take a look at uh, the lines for this fight, these fights. So uh, yeah, do that. Worth your time, Sean Bitter. Good dude. Good writer. Knows his stuff about prospects. So there you go. That's it for this week. Appreciate you tuning in. And we will be back next week. Actually, we might not be back next week. I'm actually going on, on a, uh, an anniversary trip with my wife next week. 15th anniversary. And we are going to the east coast of Canada. So if you have any recommendations for places to go in uh, New Brunswick or PEI, please feel free to hit me up. I'm, we're going to be in Moncton. And then we're going to be out in PEI. And I can't wait. That's going to be a lot of fun. It's the first trip I think my wife and I have gone together without children in like 10 plus years. So, 15 year anniversary. It's a long time to be married. 
looking forward to, uh, to that trip. That'll be fun next week. So I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing a podcast next week. If anything, it'll be just a quick recap podcast uh, for UFC 277. So keep your ears open for that. Might happen, might not. We'll see. So thanks for tuning in. And uh, we may see you next week. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.